0: We began our series in Acts back in September. We finished it this morning. It's been, I think this is the 25th or the 26th message in this great book, and we come to the end here. And uh, this morning's message is entitled actually, Ending Well, Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through 31. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petula. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, "'Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans.'" And they said to him, "'We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everything, everywhere it is spoken against.' When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers." From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, Two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this weekend, Memorial Day weekend, a day where we remember and we give thanks for all the people. Through the last 250 some odd years of the history of our nation, who served and many who paid the ultimate sacrifice and gave their lives so that we could, even this morning, worship with liberty. We thank you for these men and women. We thank you for our heritage as a nation. And Lord, we thank you for all the work that you have done in our nation Father, we we pray for our nation for the work that still needs to be done. Father, our hearts are heavy as we look at what has occurred in our nation over the last couple of weeks when someone goes into a grocery store and murders numerous people because of the color of their skin or someone interrupts a church service because of their ethnicity and kills many or wounds many. And then Father, as we saw this week, our hearts were just crushed. Every one of us who have children or or simply can relate to parents and we we saw the massacre that took place in Uvalde, Texas. God, there is something deeply, deeply wrong, broken in our nation. We ask that you would heal our land. Father, I pray that you would help us as Christians to be part of the solution and, and not continue to be part of the, the factionalism that allows these issues to continue to brew and breed and continue on. And Father, may we, uh, may we put aside all of the, the political ideologies and where we may fall on the spectrum, and may you inspire us and inspire our leaders or inspire us to put in leaders who can actually do something so this kind of junk can stop in our nation. God, heal our land and use us to heal it. Father, do a work in our lives this morning. Holy Spirit, would you open up our hearts and our ears so that we can hear, so that we are not like those who listen to Paul, who he had to give that pronouncement from Isaiah to. May we have ears that can hear. May we have eyes that can see. May we have a heart that is fertile, where the word can take seed and take plant and a harvest of righteousness can occur. Holy Spirit, would you fill me and use me? Would you give me the words that you once said this morning so that those who are here would leave differently, more in love with you, jesus more empowered by you holy spirit it's in your name i pray these things jesus amen so a couple of weeks ago i maybe three weeks ago in the beginning of the message i asked you a question to think about the first thing that popped into your head you remember it was it was famous goodbyes in movies I mean, I said, what was the, you know, think of goodbyes that occurred in movies, and you guys thought of these things, and you shared, well, we're going to do something a little similar this morning, but it's, a, it's slightly different, and you'll understand in just a second why. It's not goodbyes, famous goodbye, but when you think of the endings of movies, when you think of great endings, endings that made you go, right, to a movie, what do you think of? What are some endings that you think of? That like, oh, <laughs> <didn't> see <coughs> I didn't see that one coming. Wow. In fact, it makes the movie, right? I, I get, young people, uh, children, uh, those of you who are old enough, uh, <laughs> better put that caveat in there. Uh, uh, I can think of one right off the bat that's been recent. The ending of Avengers Infinity War, yeah. right? when our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, the superhero that everyone loves, right? The the, the nice guy, the kid, all of a sudden says, Mr. Stark, I I don't feel too good. I feel kind of funny. And then he just, you know, and he turns into ash. I went, ah! Can't do that to Spider-Man. And then he was just like one of many, you know? And then there goes the Black Panther and there goes, you know, I mean, all of these, all these guys are just like turning into, Thanos snaps the fingers and boom. I just did not see that coming. And it was like, wow, please release the next edition. I mean, they had me, right? They had me and, and it was, what a great ending. Now, for those of you who are looking at me, you older folks who are looking at me like, what are you talking about? All right, now let me give you, throw out a couple for you. How about uh, uh, maybe Raiders of Lost Ark? At the end, when you see the guy wheeling the Ark in a box, you know, and then it pans out and there's this massive government warehouse filled with boxes. Did you not say to yourself, yep, that's probably where the Ark is at. Our government would do something like that, right? You know, know, that's, you know, that kind of, or you mean Bruce Willis was a ghost the entire time in Sixth Sense? I did not see that one coming at all. Not at all. But by far, maybe one of my favorite endings, just wow, was in The Usual Suspects when Kevin Spacey, who has played this dweeb criminal the entire movie, right? At the end of the movie, he's walk- the, the police let him go, and he's in character. And then as he walks around the corner, it's like he's shedding a skin. And you realize that all this time, he is the mastermind criminal Kaiser Soze, and it just blows your mind. Phenomenal ending to a movie, right? Just, it makes it. How a movie ends can make or break the entire effort. I mean, I have seen endings that absolutely take me off. You just ruin the whole thing. And then there's those endings that catch you by so much by surprise, it's just seared into your memory. Well, church, did you know the same is true with a human life? The same is true with a human life. How we end can make a good life story a great life story or it can make what has been a good life story a tragic life story I think we all know people I think most of us can think of people that as they have come into the last acts of their life and you know that there's fewer years in front of them than they are that is behind them, that as they have come into these last acts of their life, they are like a fine wine. They just get better and better and more flavorful and aromatic. Their life has just become this aroma that glorifies God, that is pleasing to be around, and it, and you want to be around it because it gives you hope that maybe God can do that in my life maybe that's how I can end up. We all know people like that, right? And you just think, you just pray and you say, "Lord, would you would you grow me up to be like him or to be like her because that must be what Jesus is like." We all know people like that. Well, I would suggest that this is what we see in these final verses in Acts 28. Paul is ending well, and his life has a an aroma that glorifies God and inspires others to ask how can I end like this how do I end like this and I believe what we see in these verses answers that question and the short answer is our takeaway truth this morning that to end well live in harmony with who you are in Christ on mission for him this is what you see with Paul And this is what you see in this final passage, and this is what you see in the final chapters, most that we've ended up having to skip for the sake of time and because of some of the redundancies there. So in our final message in this series in the book of Acts, I want us to examine this idea by considering four gospel applications from the text so that our stories end well. First of all, to end well, your citizenship must be in the kingdom of God not the kingdom of this world. Your citizenship needs to be in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of this world. Now, we need to set some context and catch up. Years have passed. Much has happened to Paul since we last looked at him last week at the beginning of chapter 21 and that message on the tension of God's will. Remember, he got off the boat at the end of the third missionary journey And he was getting all of these warnings from different Christians and even the prophet Agabus who comes and says, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. And he has all of this, that's where we left him. And we talked about how hard it is. How do you deal with God's will? And especially in some of these difficult situations that we often face in life. Well, much has happened since then. He did go to Jerusalem. He did get arrested. He will end up for a few years being in Caesarea. He appears before two of the Roman governors. He survives assassination plots. He ends up spending much time with one of the governors explaining the gospel and teaching him the word of God to him and to his wife. He those governors, Felix and Festus, ultimately he appeals to Caesar for uh, adjudication of his case. They put him on a ship. He sails across the Mediterranean Sea. He ends up going into a horrible storm. The, the, the ship is, is wrecked, and they're washed up on to the uh, beach onto an island. They find out this is the island of Malta. And a great scene. It's kind of a humorous scene as they, they're, they're, they're soaking wet. They've survived this horrible storm and this shipwreck. Amazingly, no one dies. All 267 people live, and, and they're trying to get, build a fire, and, and he reaches into some firewood, and a, a viper, a poisonous snake, a very poisonous snake, jumps out and bites Paul. And there's this humorous scene because people from the island are there and they see the snake bite Paul and you can like read between the lines, they all, oh, and then and the Bible says they just stand there and they watch him. And, and what I think is probably going on is like, they're taking odds. Okay, is he gonna make it an hour or two hours? You know, Because they're expecting him to keel over and die and, and he doesn't, he doesn't die. And, and, and what's amazing in these chapters is everywhere Paul is, ministry, continues. It's done. People come to Christ. Disciples are made. Disciples are strengthened and built up. We need to keep all of this in mind as we come to our text this morning, because one of the first things I think we must notice is the setting and the background of this text, because it's part of the underlying story that, and it's in harmony with the underlying story, that Luke has been telling throughout the book of Acts, in the details of the setting of these verses that we've read, you'll notice something. You'll notice very subtly that Luke is putting before us, hey, the kingdom of the world, it's real. But the kingdom of God is also real. And the kingdom of God has begun to invade this worldly kingdom, and it's beginning to defeat it. In the passage, in the text, there's several little, this little offhand remarks that remind us This ministry of Paul and and everything that's taking place is taking place in a very real worldly kingdom. And the kingdom of the world is very different than the kingdom of God. You you see, for example, that he's on a, a ship from Alexandria. Why not just a ship? Why does he say a ship of Alexandria? Because this is a certain kind of ship. It's a ship of commerce, a ship of business. It's a ship that is dedicated to business and career and making money. And how much do we understand that in the kingdom of this world, money and business and commerce and career is emphasized? Because the kingdom of this world wants us to turn and focus on these things and to find our uh, our, uh, security in this aspect of our lives. Yea, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I will trust, I will fear no evil, I will trust in the stock market and my 401K, right? I mean, this is the message of our world and this is the message that we are encouraged to embrace. Trust in business, trust in money, trust in your career, trust in commerce, trust in the economy, these types of things. This is what drives our lives. You see other aspects of the kingdom of the world and civilization and culture that is mentioned. The major mention here is Rome. And of course, Rome is the dominant civilization and culture of that day. And of course, the kingdom of the world encourages us to trust in our culture and our civilization, to find our identity there. In Paul's day, it was all things Rome. It was the pride of Rome and being Roman meant something. But in our day, Roman has been replaced with American or Republican or Democrat or socialist or black or white or Hispanic or for a few pathetic people, Tennessee volunteer fans or whatever, okay? Um, But but we are encouraged to find our identity in something other than God, right? This is the kingdom of the world. We are encouraged to find our, our security in commerce and business and money and things, and we're encouraged to find our identity in our culture and our civilization and and something else, I love the study that the ladies are gonna be doing. How appropriate, ladies, that you would study identity theft this summer because we're bombarded by this with our culture. But there's a, another important aspect in, this, in the details of this text that show the kingdom of the world is alive and very real in this story. And that's the, the created saviors that are they're referred to. And they're on opposite ends of the, of the spectrum. The boat from Alexandria, right? It has the twin fig gods as figureheads. This is a reference to Castor and Pollux, the, the Greek demigods who are part of Greek and Roman mythology. The sailors in the ancient world, uh, they would make sacrifices to these two brothers uh, seeking to have you know, good wind, uh, you know, low calm seas, no bad storms and make it back to port. Uh, safely. And anybody who's ever spent time on the water uh, understands, you know, that, that's a pretty important need, And so they, they are turning to this religious belief, making their sacrifices before every, you know, uh, every time they embark in order to have that kind of comfort. On the other end of the spectrum is the reference to Paul when he gets to Rome and he's talking to these Jewish leaders saying, I've, I've done nothing to violate the customs of our fathers. This is a reference to what had grown into the legalistic religion of the Hebrews and how they had turned God's covenant into a a set of rituals and and do's and don'ts and moralistic platitudes. See, the kingdom of the world is not anti-religion. What it does is it encourages us to create our own saviors so that that internal spiritual comfort that we need, that we crave, that we're created with, that we seek to fulfill it through our own functional saviors. This is what the kingdom of the world does. It encourages us to turn to, to commerce, to our culture and civilization, to our own created saviors for the things that we need, our security, our identity, our comfort, rather than to our creator and to our Lord Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of the world is clearly in the setting of this passage. But then there is this beautiful reminder in these opening verses that the kingdom of God has invaded the kingdom of this world. Verse 14, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome and the brothers there, brothers from Rome, when they heard about us, they walk out 40 miles to meet Paul at the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. I mean, think about all the things that Paul's faced. Even in this journey to Rome, this is a microcosm of his life since the Damascus Road. What sustained him? through all of that. What encouraged him? What gave him the courage and the hope to carry on? It was the power, it was the strength, it was the blessings that only come when we reject, when we reject membership and citizenship in the kingdom of this world and instead we embrace Jesus Christ and we become citizens in the kingdom of God. And so, to end well, I would ask you, whose kingdom do you belong to? Who has the allegiance of your heart this morning? Who are you worshiping? To end well, you must be a citizen of God's kingdom. Secondly, to end well, your convictions are centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's this great scene. In the middle of this text. You know, Paul has met there's several synagogues in Rome. Paul's met the different rabbis and the presidents and the leaders of the synagogue, and they arranged a follow-up meeting. And then you have this scene of that meeting, verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that meeting between Paul, rabbi, trained as a Pharisee with these other rabbis and religious leaders. I wonder what that all day sermon would have been like. I, I doubt that it was a monologue. I doubt it was like what I'm doing right now, where Paul stood up and he preached hour upon hour upon hour upon hour. Now, he did do that earlier in the book of Acts, and we skipped that story, but one poor guy, it went on so long, he fell asleep in the middle of a sermon, like Mike Jug does in all of my sermons, and uh, he fell out of the balcony and he broke his neck and died, and then Paul resurrected him from the dead. So, uh, Just as a fair warning, if any of that happens to you guys, I, no, don't look to me for that, okay? Uh, But uh, what what probably happened here was Paul and the rabbis, (coughs) excuse me, they have a conversation back and forth as they look at various points of Scripture. I wonder what he said. You know, Dr. James Boyce suggests that if we really want to get an idea of what he said, we should just turn the page to the next book, the book of Romans, Probably a lot of the book of Romans worked its way into what Paul was saying. I'm sure that in some way, the apostle Paul, as he was normally seems to have done, was he found common ground. I bet he started with, you know, something along the lines of the great commandment. And they talked about how important it is to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Amen, yeah. There's agreement here. And how, how we are created by God. We exist to worship Him and to serve Him. And absolutely, they're all agreeing and they're, they're in, a, in total agreement on all of this. At some point, I'm sure that he moved to how humanity has missed it. Maybe maybe even brought up Castor and Pollux, you know? You know the boat I came in on? They, 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 these Gentiles, they had false idols right on the bow of the boat. Can you believe this? All the idol, yeah, we live in this city and there's idols everywhere. Man, these Gentiles, they just missed it. But at, at some point, There was an uh uh-oh moment in this conversation. At some point, Paul turns the attention and the spotlight on the Jewish people. And he says, the Jews, we Jews are no different. We may not have created idols like Castor and Pollux, But we did something even worse. We were given the revelation from God himself. And what did we do with it? We substituted works righteousness for the righteousness that comes by faith. We took the promises of God and the prophecies of God of the Messiah. And we crucified him on a cross. At some point as he begins to walk them through the scriptures and through the Psalms and all the messianic Psalms and through the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and show them how this uh, are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the pushback begins and the argument begins. And ultimately, some believe, most do not. Now, why is it important for us to think about that for this portion of the passage It's important, there's practical application for us here because it reminds us as Christians of how important it is for all of us to understand that all of the scriptures are to be viewed through the prism of Jesus Christ. That all of the scriptures are given to bring us to Jesus. That all of the scriptures make sense only when viewed through the lenses of the gospel. I mean, think about it, church, for a moment. If if Jesus is the central, pivotal, foundational, central point of the scriptures, and if God has given us the scriptures to be the pivotal central point of our lives from which we, we, we understand who he is and how we're to live our lives, how we're to raise our children, how we're to spend our money, how we're to interact with our world, and our neighbors and our lives and conduct. Our, and then this is why he's given us to the scriptures. And the central part of the scriptures is Jesus. Then the central, pivotal, foundational truth of our lives is to be Jesus, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says this. He does it in a much more entertaining way. Do a parable. Tells about two men. They decide to build their homes. They're going to build homes. They get their plans together. Inflation hits, supply chain problems occur, the cost of their construction projects skyrockets. Oh, wait a second, I'm I'm mixing in my my life with, uh, anyway. (laughs) One guy panics. He builds his house on the sand. The other guy, he stays true to the course. He builds his house on the rock. The storms come. The house built on the sand, the family, the man and his family are in that house. The storms come, the house collapses, everyone's killed. The Storms come, the man who builds his house on the rock, his family is there, the man is there. They withstand the storms, everything is fine. The point that Jesus is making here in this parable, he's saying something very, very important. If we want to end well, We must build our lives upon him and upon the truth of his gospel. It is the gospel applied to our lives through the Holy Spirit that empowers us and changes us to be like Christ. The gospel. It's meant to influence everything that we believe, to shape how we think, and how we view the world and what we believe about God and how we live our lives. Why is this so important to be reminded of? Because church, look at the obvious. The rabbis, they knew the scriptures better than we do. Most of these guys had the Old Testament memorized. They, they knew all kinds of true things about God and how God wants us to live and right and wrong and they knew all this thing these things but when you don't read the bible through the unifying theme of jesus and the gospel when you don't read the bible through the unifying theme of jesus who is god full of grace and truth when you don't read it through the lenses of the gospel and through jesus then humility and grace begin to dissipate and leak out of your life. And in their place steps pride and self-righteousness. And that's what begins to grow. And when this happens, your convictions about God and your faith and how to live out your faith in the world in which we live how it's to be expressed, more and more it becomes legalistic and moralistic. And church, legalistic, moralistic Christians do not end well. They do not end well. To end well, your convictions must be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, to end well, your calling is to serve God wherever He places you. So at the end of his meeting with those Jewish Hebrew leaders, Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen, they leave, and then we get insight from Luke into the last years of Paul's life. Just a couple of verses. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ." Now, understand what that's saying. Here's Paul, he's essentially under house arrest. Now, their version of house arrest was very different than ours where you have the little ankle bracelet. As inconvenient as an ankle bracelet is, for those who've ever had to wear one, which so far, thank God I haven't, just to set the record straight, I don't want any rumors getting started this morning. The Roman Empire's version of an ankle bracelet in Paul's case was to have a member of Caesar's imperial guard 24 seven in shifts. They would come and they were chained to Paul. So there was a chain between Paul and that imperial guard. Now he could walk around the house Maybe he could go down to the Piggly Wiggly and get groceries. I don't know. Um, But that was his existence the entire time for at least two years that he's under this house arrest. And from here, it gets worse. He goes to a dungeon, a horrible place, and then ultimately, he faces the executioner's axe. This is his life. And I I look at that little sentence, and I I stopped and I thought to myself, (laughs) how would I have responded to those circumstances? And I know myself well enough to to have said, "Mm, probably not too good, at least not initially. I would have been really focused. I would have been really tempted to focus on those chains. And I now have this big, hairy, smelly Gentile chained to me 24-7, No privacy, nothing. This guy, what have I done? And I'm an innocent man and I have this to deal with? Well, I guess God's done with me. Guess I got to wait till I get delivered from this before I can do anything for God. I'm pretty sure that would have been my initial. It's so easy. I find it for me to, to focus on my circumstances, my chains, the obstacles that are before me. And sometimes use them to justify fears and doubts and, and actions that are opposite of my calling. Is there something in your life right now, church, Christian, right now that you're focusing on that's interfering with your service to God, your calling from God? Is there something right now that you're using as an excuse to not invite that co-worker out to lunch to to hopefully begin some kind of a redemptive relationship with him? Is there something that you're using to not invite that neighbor over for a a cookout, to begin a friendship, and to begin to express the love of Christ to them? Is there something that you're using as an excuse to not use your gifts, your talents, your resources, the money that God has given you, the, the abilities that God has given you to help build up his kingdom? what is that thing that you might be using as an excuse this morning? Have you been in ministry and it's gotten difficult and you're thinking about quitting because of the obstacles? I mean, let's face it. Here at Covenant Church, since the fall of 2019, ministry has been really hard. It's been hard. We've gone through a lot, as many churches have. Not, I mean, not just counting COVID, right? I mean, you had to kind of really want to be here this morning to walk through all the obstacles just to get here, right? We've had a lot going on. So volunteers, are you tempted to quit this morning? Have you been wondering if it's worth it? You've been looking at your obstacles? I know I, I look at the obstacles a lot of times. I look at the chains and I read these verses and man, it convicts me, it challenges me. Because I look at Paul, who's sitting here in chains, literal chains, and we think of chains as a hindrance, but for Paul, they created a captive audience, (laughs) right? There's a captive audience here. This apostle to the Gentiles recognizes that every day, he has an elite Gentile member of Caesar's imperial guard chained to him, he can't get away from him. He has to sit there and listen to him as Christians from the Roman church come in and he teaches them about God's word and he disciples them as Jewish people come in and, he's, and they, they hear the gospel over and over and over again. He's got a captive audience of unbelieving Gentiles who are in positions of influence. And what happens? This is what he tells the Philippians. He writes this letter to them while he's in chains. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How cool is that? You know, archeologists have found in the barracks of the Imperial guards, they have found graffiti. And the graffiti is of other Imperial guards worshiping a guy on a cross with a a donkey head. And and the the taglines are like, you know, Lucius worshiping his God. In other words, Lucius was a, had become a Christian and, and the, the person on the cross was Jesus and, and, and this was pagan graffiti about Jesus in the barracks of the imperial guards. What Paul wrote here is true. These guys were coming to Christ. Now, did his ministry in Rome look the, the, like the ministry in Ephesus, like in Corinth? Absolutely not. But look at what God did to him Simply because, through him simply because he was willing to serve where God had planted him. I mean, some of our favorite New Testament books were written during this period of time. One of the most joyful New Testament books, Philippians, written during this time. One of the deepest books on the deity of Jesus Christ, written during this time, Colossians, which we're going to go through next spring. And some some of the most wonderful New Testament books he wrote during this period of time. And then the church in Rome is strengthened and it's firmly established and the elders and the members come and go and they're discipled by Paul as he's chained to a Roman guard and these Roman guards are converted and they carry the message into Caesar's household itself. How awesome is this? That he served his Lord right where he was planted. What a message that is to each and every one of us regardless of our age, regardless of where we are in the continuum of life, that God is not done with us serving the kingdom until he calls us home. There is no retirement in the kingdom of God, no retirement. We do not rust out as Christians. We flame out baby, all right? That's the way it's meant to be. I was talking to my mentor, Rod White, many of you guys know, Rod. Now he's in his late '80s, he's been my pastor, He's just such an influence in my life, and we were talking the other day. he's not preaching publicly anymore. He gave that up a few years ago because just you know, cognitive mental abilities and speech and all that just begins to slow down. But he was showing me what he does: His ministry now, every day, hours of prayer. And he has prayer list on Monday for this. And I'm prayed for on Tuesdays. And he was showing the list of men and women in God's kingdom doing God's work that he prays for. And you should have seen the excitement in his face. You know what he told me? He said, if I could go back to when I was pastoring actively, I would have been doing more of what I'm doing now back then. 87 years old, he's going to flame out, not rust out. He's serving where he's planted. Well, final thing, to end well, what leads someone like Paul to do this in such chains and circumstances? To end well, your confidence is in our Lord Jesus and his ongoing mission. So here he is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all depression and discouragement, whining and mealy-mouthedness. No, no with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul was boldly serving and proclaiming the gospel even as his circumstances were less than ideal. He'll continue to serve God in these circumstances until he goes to the executioner's acts. Why was he able to do this? How was that possible? Is it because he had a different Holy Spirit living in him than we do? Is it because he was just smarter than us or more stubborn than us. I know some of you, he was not more stubborn than me <laughs> or some of you, right? No. He was not, no, no, he's the same, he puts his pants on just like, well, he put a robe on, but you get the idea. He's a man used by God. Why was this how possible? It was because first, and, first of all, first and foremost, he was a citizen of God's kingdom. He was a citizen of God's kingdom whose life and convictions and beliefs were centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a man whose affections had been inevitably turned from the kingdom of this world and set on the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus did in his life. And church, this is what Jesus does in every Christian's life who follows him. He sets our affections on things above, on the kingdom of this world. And this changes how we live and how we serve God. We want to serve God. We want to be used by God. And service is not always easy. It's often hard. It can be discouraging. You have obstacles. You have hindrances. You have all kinds of reasons to not obey. But in spite of all of that, there is this confidence that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And why is that? Why is Paul living so confidently in this type of situation? Why is he living confidently in harmony with who he is in Christ on mission for him? Why? What's the secret? Well, he tells us. He explains to his protege, Timothy that the basis for his confidence, for our confidence, that Jesus is going to accomplish his mission, that the kingdom of God is ultimately going to thoroughly, completely defeat the kingdom of this world. And he tells him right before he goes to the Acts why he was so confident. We'll end with this verse. Always remember that Jesus Christ, descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. We serve a risen, ascended Savior who right now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us so that we can boldly enter into the throne of God at any moment that we wish and desire, finding our very help in time of need. We do not worship a dead God created by human hands. We we worship a resurrected creator of the universe. This is the good news I preach. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. I love this sentence. But the word of God cannot be chained. Why was he confident? Because the gospel is the power of God given for the salvation of men and the restoration of God's creation. God will do this work. Jesus says, I will make all things new and devil and the hell itself will not prevail against the mission that I am carrying out. The kingdom of God will win this day, amen. Heavenly Father. We thank you for this promise of inevitable victory. Even as we go through weeks like this, where it seems like the kingdom of this world has won the day. But we know that's not the case. We know that the victory has been won, but there's still a lot of guerrilla warfare, there's still a lot of mop up battles that will continue until the very end. And when you return, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Would you make all things new? And for the one here this morning whose citizenship is not in the kingdom of God, whose confidence is in themselves or in our culture, our civilization, and and their money and their their giftedness, whatever it may be, would you convict them? Would you give them ears that can hear and eyes that can see and a heart that can believe the good news that comes through Jesus Christ? I ask these things for their good and for the glory of his name. Amen.